Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. In this podcast, I'm going to take you all the way back to 1947 and tell you everything you probably already know about the alleged UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And maybe some things you don't already know. Maybe. This was one of the best-known UFO cases of all time, but it almost wasn't. At first, the Army reported that they had recovered a flying disc, and then soon afterward they said, no, no, never mind. It was a weather balloon, and then everyone forgot about it for 30 years. Until former nuclear physicist, now ufologist, Stanton Friedman, was in a Baton Rouge TV station waiting for an interview and talking to the station manager. The manager said, you should talk to Jesse Marcel over in Huma. He actually handled wreckage from a crashed UFO. Well, after the interview, Friedman went to the airport to catch his flight, and he called Marcel from the airport and spoke to him, and that started the whole Roswell UFO craze. There have been several books, at least one movie, hundreds of articles, and it's been the topic in many, many TV shows about the subject. The first book, referred to simply as The Book by people who studied Roswell, was The Roswell Incident by Charles Berlitz and William Moore. It's like the Bible for a ufologist. So, here's the story. In June of 1947, there were many reports of UFO sightings. One of the most famous ones was that of Kenneth Arnold. Arnold was a civilian pilot who was flying around Mount Rainier looking for a downed aircraft. Sunlight reflecting off of distant objects, caught his eye, and he claims that he saw nine boomerang or crescent-shaped objects flying in formation near the mountaintops, traveling at a tremendous speed. He described them as saucers skipping over the surface of water. He had just coined the term flying saucers. Soon after that, there was a report of an unknown object being picked up on radar scopes at Alamogordo and White Sands. The next day, there were several eyewitness reports of a glowing object traveling near Roswell, heading toward the northwest. On June 13th, at the Foster Ranch near Corona, New Mexico, there was a thunderstorm, and the foreman of the ranch, William MacBrazel, heard what he thought was an explosion. The sound was also heard on another ranch about 10 miles away. Mr. Brazel said that the noise was so loud that it rattled the windows in the ranch house. And it wasn't thunder. The next day, June 14th, Brazza was either riding his horse to see what could possibly have made the sound, or he and his son, Vernon, were driving across the ranch when they came across an area that was littered with a large amount of foil-like debris, rubber strips, and rather tough paper and sticks, all fanned out in a wedge shape. Still had seen debris from weather balloon crashes on the Foster Ranch before, there had been at least two. But this looked different, way different. There was a large herd of sheep stranded on one side of the debris field. The sheep refused to cross the debris field, even though their water was on the other side. Brazel had to lead them around the wreckage so they could get to the water. That was weird. He then gathered up some of the debris and took it to a neighboring ranch where a woman named Loretta Proctor lived. She told him that there might be some kind of reward for turning the material in, so soon after that, he went to Corona. It was there that he heard the stories of the strange UFO sightings. He was in Jesse Wade's bar and was telling him what he found, 
and asked Jesse if he wanted to go out there with him and see it. Jesse was the only one running the bar, and he would have to close it to go see, so he turned Mac down. And many years later, his son Chuck said that he regretted going immensely. So, after sitting at the bar and listening to these stories of flying saucers, Mac thought that maybe he had found one of these things, so he went to the sheriff's office to report what he had found on his ranch. Sheriff Wilcox looked at the material and couldn't figure out what it was, so he contacted Roswell Army Airfield. Colonel William Blanchard sent the base intelligence officer, Major Jesse Marcel, to investigate. Marcel took counterintelligence agent Captain Sheridan Cabot with him. Some reports say that the sheriff went too. Others do not mention the sheriff. So maybe three people went with Mac Brazel to the ranch. It was 75 miles away, so by the time they got there, they decided to stay the night at the ranch house and investigate in the morning. Seems weird to me, but probably didn't seem weird back then. Morning comes, and they go to check out the debris field. I mentioned last week that someone had said that the UFO was downed by an advanced electromagnetic weapon hidden in a radar gun. I have since seen that in two other places and by two other people. One stating that the electromagnetic weapon was installed on a plane. Well, anyway, it rendered the UFO uncontrollable and it crashed. That is even more unbelievable now because it took almost a month for Mac Brazel to report the debris he found. If the Air Force shot it down, they would be crawling all over the place looking for it, right? So, anyway, they're at the debris field and they think they really have something here. It is definitely not a weather balloon. Marcel sends Cabot back to the base while he packs up some of the debris into a few boxes and puts them in his car. By the way, I should mention that the Air Force made Cabot sign an affidavit regarding what he found at the site. In his affidavit, Sheridan Cabot wrote, The amount of debris was very small, about 20 square feet. I remember recognizing the material as being consistent with a weather balloon, which would easily fit in one vehicle. That was after they claimed that it was a weather balloon. It sounds a little coerced to me. Just the wording, you know? Marcel doesn't go straight back to the base. He makes a stop at his house, and he wakes his wife and son to show them what he found. According to Marcel's son, Jesse Marcel Jr., he had a box that had some foil material, some brownish-black plastic, and what appeared to be metal beams or I-beams. The I-beams were the most interesting to Jesse Jr. They looked like they had writing on one side. Most of it was a matte gray, but looking closer, he saw that they were slightly purple or lavender and had symbols like letters, but not like letters he'd ever seen before. The only one he remembers resembled a seal balancing a ball on its nose. After showing it to his family, Major Marcel took the material back to the base at Roswell Army Airfield. The base commander, Colonel Blanchard, examined the material. After examination of the debris and submitting official reports to superior officers, the information officer issued a public statement that the Air Force had recovered a flying disc. Soon after that, General Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, Texas, contacted Colonel Blanchard and ordered him to issue a corrected statement in which the material was to be described as debris from a common weather balloon. 
General Ramey also had Colonel Blanchard fly the material to Fort Worth so he could examine it for himself and ordered Major Marcel to accompany the material on the flight. When General Ramey saw it, he had Marcel pinpoint on a map the exact location where the debris was collected. After that, it was to be flown to Wright-Patterson Army Airfield in Dayton, Ohio. The debris had a single impact point that scarred the earth and the material was spread out in a triangular shaped area 200 to 300 feet wide and three quarters of a mile long. They used a C-54 Skymaster to transport all of the material. That's a really big plane. It actually looks like a commercial airliner. The stories vary as to where the materials were sent, but for our purposes here, I'll just stick to one source. While Major Marcel was in Fort Worth, General Ramey had a civilian journalist come to the base and take pictures of the materials. The reporter was James Bond Johnson from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He was asking questions, but Major Marcel was ordered not to speak about it, so General Ramey answered all the questions, even if the questions were directed at Major Marcel. So Johnson took his pictures, which are now famous of Major Marcel holding a piece of weather balloon radar target and another one of General Ramey examining the radar target. A radar target is a type of target suspended below a free balloon and designed to be an efficient reflector for radio energy. It looks like a kite made from aluminum foil. Jesse Marcel Jr. points out in his book, The Roswell Legacy, that the balloon envelope, which is the package that holds a balloon before it is released, is in the background of the picture. If this were a crashed balloon, it wouldn't still have its packaging with it. So obviously, this was staged. Also, in the picture, you can see General Ramey with a memo in his hand. There's been a lot of interest in zooming in and looking at what is on that memo. A private individual is offering a $10,000 reward for the first person or group slash lab that can provide a definitive read of the Ramey memo. Memo? that can provide a definitive read of the Ramey Memo. In Season 1, Episode 6 of History's Greatest Mysteries, ufologist Kevin Randall and former CIA operative Ben Smith go to great length examining the memo. They find the words Fort Worth and Weather Balloon. They also look over the word or words that could be victims of the crash, which would indicate one thing, or it could be saying viewing the crash which would indicate something else. They get permission to view the original negative that's in cold storage at the University of Texas at Arlington. It's in cold storage for preservation. Then they bring in the high-tech Giga Macro to examine the negative with high resolution and magnification. It will be like looking at it with a high-powered microscope. Gene Cooper, the founder and CEO of Giga Macro, is the technician that is going to use the microscope to try to read the memo in General Ramey's hand. After looking at the word they thought might be victim, it looked more like the word pending. Now, Jesse Marcel Jr. shows in his book that the letter was enhanced and mentions victims of the wreck and aviators of the disc. It's interesting to me that Jesse Marcel Jr. could see things without the high-powered gigamicro and that they support the UFO theory, and the researchers couldn't see as well with the Gigamacro. That tells me if you want to see something there, you'll see something there. Going back to the crash site, I mentioned before that there was a deep gouge where the craft impacted the ground and then a large debris field. 
if it were a weather balloon, a lighter-than-air craft, I don't think that there would be a deep impact mark. I'm no scientist, but I would think that the material would kind of float down to the ground. Am I way off here? Or since there were multiple balloons, if one burst, the whole rig would float down, bounce, come down again, bounce, and so on. I just visualize a softer landing than what was described. Tom Carey, who was a researcher of the UFO crash, actually found a witness who had been at the crash site. He was a staff sergeant at Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. His name, Earl Fulford. He claims that in the days before crashes, people in the town and airmen were seeing things in the sky. He himself had seen them as well, and they were unlike anything he had ever seen before. There were three of them. They were circular and hung motionless. He and his friends watched them for a few minutes, and then the craft suddenly disappeared. That falls in line with what I read. Fulford claims that in the morning after witnessing the craft, Sergeant Rosenberg came in the mess hall at 5 a.m. and gathered about 15 to 20 men, including Fulford, loaded them on a bus, and took them to the debris field about 70 miles north of Roswell. They picked up debris, which he said had a very unusual shape, feel, and appearance. Earl described the debris field as a fan shape and covered about one square mile, and debris was everywhere. It took most of the day to get it all picked up. He said vehicles all drove up and formed a circle. Then the men started walking in one direction about 10 to 15 feet apart so they wouldn't miss anything. He described the material as looking like tarnished chrome foil in pieces and shreds. When he picked up a piece and wadded it up, before he put it in his gunny sack, it went back to its original shape. So he took it out, wadded it up again, and same thing. After they picked up the debris and put it in their sacks, it was taken by the military police and he never saw or heard about it since. They were also told that if they talked about what they'd just seen, they would be in big trouble. And he said, big trouble. Also, I think that people were a little bit different back then. If they were told to keep quiet, they kept quiet. If that were to happen today, I think it would be a lot different. So, we have a crash, a report of UFO, a retraction, then people forgot about it, then a resurgence, and it got to the point that people were demanding answers from the government about the cover-up. Nobody thought it was a weather balloon. There were military intelligence officers that were highly trained at the debris field. They would know a weather balloon when they saw one, no doubt. We want answers. I saw footage of people with signs protesting outside the White House. So it's been a big deal for 30, 40 years. So the military comes out in 1997 and issues its nearly 1,000 report regarding the Roswell incident. They claim that the weather balloon story was a cover-up. Okay, sounds good so far. Because what really crashed in the New Mexico desert was a top-secret balloon from Project Mogul. What? Project Mogul? Another balloon? Sometimes referred to as Operation Mogul, was a top-secret project by the U.S. Army Air Forces involving microphones flown on high-altitude balloons whose primary purpose was long-distance detection of sound waves generated by Soviet atomic bomb tests. The balloons were made of neoprene and inflated with helium. They were very large because they were expected to fly extremely high, like 75,000 feet. 
They were about 7 feet across on the ground and expanded to about 25 feet at altitude. They had an array of components that would hang down in a long train beneath the balloons, like 600 feet long. They included microphones, batteries, transmitters, plastic tubes, silk canopy parachutes, braided nylon cord, and radar targets, composed of balsa wood sticks and metalized paper, similar to chocolate bar wrappers. They were launched from Alamogorda and would go northeast across the state and beyond. There were about 11 mogul balloons launched, and the one they think crashed in Roswell was balloon number four, which launched on June 4, 1947. Project Mogul's lead engineer was Professor Charles Moore of New York University. He agreed with the government that the debris matched the description of one of his balloons. Mogul balloon number four. Number four was actually missing, so put two and two together, and there you have it. One's missing, one's found. Here's what was on number four. 28 neoprene balloons, Sonoboy microphone, dry cell batteries, and an FN transmitter, four Raywin radar targets composed of balsa sticks and metalized paper, multiple plastic tubes containing a liquid ballast dribbler system, three silk canopy parachutes with highly visible colors, and 600 feet plus of braided nylon cord. According to Dr. Moore, on mogul number four, the radar targets, which looked like box kites, were made by a New York toy company that used leftover tape to reinforce its seams. It was decorated with flowers and berries and a Christmas motif. He told the army that the tape was pink and purple and had flowers on it to match what Jesse Marcel Jr. claimed he saw. Hmm. This is what the Air Force said Major Jesse Marcel found in the debris field. There was no mention of any neoprene balloons or nylon cord or batteries or any electronic components being found, just like the metal-like material with sticks and some pieces of what looked like brownish-black plastic. You would think that anyone that found it would know it wasn't extraterrestrial if it had Christmas tape on it. Also, it would take all the radar targets from all the mogul balloons to make the size debris field that was described. I'm not a skeptic but I'm also not easy to convince either. But what I've been able to find out through books and articles, I believe that there was a UFO crash at Roswell. It definitely wasn't a weather balloon, and it wasn't a mogul balloon. But I haven't mentioned the disc-shaped craft or the alien bodies recovered. So, here I go. This, this might be as, not quite as believable. It has been suggested that when the craft hit the ground, It then skipped and went another 25 miles to its eventual landing spot. This was called Crash Site 2. This is where it was reported that there were alien bodies recovered, in addition to a disc. Plus, this was not the only crash in New Mexico during this time, or even the first crash. Chuck Wade, remember him? His dad owned the bar that Mac Brazel went to. Well, he's been studying UFOs for the past 29 years and claims there were seven crashes total. Five of the crashes occurred during the first week of July in 1947. Chuck's theory on why there were so many crashes is whenever they put in Los Alamos National Laboratory, they installed three major high-powered radars to guard the skies over Los Alamos. Wade believed that powerful radar signals emitted from the Los Alamos nuclear site caused short circuits in the spaceships. 
special group of military men that would go and clean up the crash site and send the debris and crafts and pilots to secret locations. Where's the proof? I can't find anything other than second or third hand stories from witnesses. One of the other crashes happened the same week as Roswell, but 250 miles away on the plains of San Augustin. Some people claim that it crashed into the craft that crashed at Roswell and they bounced off each other like pool balls. One morning in early July 1947, a man named Barney Barnett finds a crashed UFO including dead alien bodies. He claims the military arrives at the site not too long after he does, and they order him to keep quiet about what he's seen. Apparently, there were archaeologists and students at the site as well. The military told everyone never to talk about what they'd seen and to keep quiet. Art Campbell is a researcher who has studied the site on the plains of San Augustin, and he claims that there is a large amount of evidence still there. He uncovered several different artifacts during a dig in 1995. Chuck Wade also has artifacts from the San Augustin site. Campbell cross-references his dig's location with the story of Barney Barnett, who claimed to find a UFO site in that area. Barney Barnett was a soil conservation engineer, and he had a district that was 70 miles long and 72 miles wide, and he was assigned to help farmers with conservation projects. It was from one of the main highways that he drove on that he saw something glinting in the sun. He told his friends and relatives that he thought it was a plane crash and he knew a way in, so he drove over there as fast as he could get there and came over a small rise and looked down on this UFO, and there were two bodies outside the craft. He was there for 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and some archaeologists came up. The archaeologists were returning from a nearby dig when they stumbled upon Barney and the UFO crash site. In his research, Campbell located corroborating documents for Barnett's claim. According to a letter from the Peabody Museum at Harvard University, archaeologist Herbert W. Dick was working at Bat Cave in the plains of San Augustin in the summer of 1947. Bat Cave is in close proximity to the site where Art performed his dig. So, if all of this is true, what are the UFOs doing there in New Mexico? There have been a lot of UFO sightings near nuclear facilities throughout the modern UFO phenomenon. There have even been reports of UFOs shutting down nuclear missile sites. At the time, in 1947, Roswell Army Airfield was the only place on Earth that actually had nuclear weapons. So it would make sense that they would be there. This story has been around for a long time, and there are a lot of people who believe in it 100%. The whole town of Roswell has this UFO theme now. It completely changed the town from a sleepy little farming town to a tourist attraction. You can believe what you want. Remember, believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. I'm leaning toward believing this one. Do you personally have a UFO story? Let me know. You can email me at UFO and Alien Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.